So uh, this morning we're closing up our series in Galatians. We've been going through the book of Galatians and uh, the whole letter, Paul, uh, my font went funny again. Oh, sorry about that. I had a whole fancy font on the screen and it's went and changed to something else. Anyway, you can read what it says. The whole letter of Galatians, Paul has been writing to the people of Galatia and he's been warning them. He's been urging them to uncover and understand who Jesus really is. So why Jesus came uh, to die for them and what that means and not to be swayed by what the Judaizers are saying. So there's this group of people called the Judaizers and they're focusing on laws and regulations and, and ticking boxes basically in terms of their faith. That was the core of their faith. And Paul's just warning them. So we're reaching now uh, the final remarks and uh, we all breathe a sigh of relief thinking we've been doing Galatians for ages, haven't we? Uh, but Paul brings it all together in this passage. Uh, if you think, if, just thinking of kind of currently what's going on, if you think of uh, the political debates and the elections coming up, this is like Paul's closing statement. If you think of a leader's debate, this is his closing statement that we're uh, going to be reading. And for the people of Galatia, this was the final remarks that Paul hoped will protect and bring Jesus and his presence and his power into full view for these people. So we're going to be reading Galatians 6, 11 to 18, and I'm going to ask Adam... Could you be our Bible distributor? Oh, he's getting, everyone's like, oh, poor Adam. That just makes me want to do it more. Adam, let's give a cheer for Adam, yeah. That's a big cheer. You are well loved. If you don't have a Bible, put your hand up and we'll get a Bible out to you. And please take it as a gift if you don't have one at home. And it should come up on the screen as well, hopefully. Let's see. There we go, it's quite small. Before we read that, let's just pray. Lord, we don't take your word for granted. We know and we believe it's a, a living word and you want to speak to us through it, Father. Will your spirit just, just weave into every, every part that we look at and just, yeah, we just open our hearts, Lord. Right now, wherever we're at, we just say, come, Lord, just come into our into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read. So starting at verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by the means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. So up until this point, all the other chapters that Paul has been writing, Paul probably used a secretary. That's what we read in the commentaries. But we read in verse 11, he starts with, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. He wanted to end with a personalized plea to show that the letter wasn't forged 
and also big writing. So some of you in your Bibles might have capital letters and bolds. Have you got have any of you got capital letters in that bit? Anybody? No? Okay. In my Bible it did anyway. We'll gloss over that very quickly. Uh, some other commentators think it's because his eyesight was bad. Uh, that's an interesting take on it as well. I'm not too sure about that. But it was actually just to emphasize. So bold and in capitals. And uh, he just wanted to say to the people, be aware. I just want to stress this last couple of things that I'm saying, this is important. And I, I'm not messing here. You know, take on board what I'm warning you about. And I've entitled the talk this morning, Which Way? That each and every one of us have choices to make. And Paul is very specific here in this passage as the two choices uh, that, that we have to make. And when it comes to choices, we have big and small choices that we go through in life. We've got lots of things that we have to choose. And when it comes to big choices, there's one thing that comes to mind for me when I have a, a decision to make. And it's a, it's a YouTube video that it reminds me of. I, I quite like scrolling through YouTube and watching absolute rubbish for hours on end. But it's this in particular video of the slow-mo guys. I don't know if anybody has seen these group of people. They're called the slow-mo guys. And basically what they have is they have this very high-tech uh, HD slow-motion a video camera and what they do they have loads and loads of videos of them doing things like they've got a huge big water balloon and they'll jump up from a ladder and they'll just jump on it like this and they'll show you in slow motion they're like Whoa, and they jump onto it and the water goes everywhere and they're like Whoa, their face is going all Whoa, and other things like there's another one where they get a football just smashed against their face and, and their face all goes sideways and that's the kind of things I watch. But anyway, this video uh, reminds me of, in those moments, those slow-mo moments, when we have big decisions and big choices to make, uh, when it comes to my life, I kind of think of that video. And I think everything kind of goes in slow motion. It's in my head. What am I going to do? What choices am I going to make? What way am I going to go? We all have choices every day. You made a choice to join us this morning. And I'd like to think that you'll be thinking that's a good one, uh, sitting here this morning. But some of them are small, but they're also massive choices which demonstrate which way we are walking, which way we're walking in life. Things like, do I tell the truth about my day off? Did I, did I really work on that day? Or did I tell my boss about my workmate's dishonesty? Or did I switch the computer off at half 11 when my wife was away sleeping? And those are our slow-mo moments. When we have that time in between to decide it feels like slow motion and we're battling in our heads. Which way do we go? And that's how I kind of explain it when it comes to those kind of choices. And Paul is choosing, he's discussing here, you have two choices. You have the way of the world and you have the way of the cross. So he's outlining two ways of living, two ways of doing life. The way that he is following, he's looking to Jesus and the way that the false teachers, the Judaizers, are looking through life and the difference in them. So this morning, uh, we're going to explore these two ways. Firstly, the way of the world and that the Judaizers are displaying motives in their mission that focus on worldly things, focuses on worldly things, the pulls and the temptations that life can lead to. That they were obsessing, firstly, with outward appearance and they were neglecting the heart. Secondly, there were decisions that were fueled by fear and thirdly, they were polluted by pride. So that's what we're going to look at. And then uh, after the way of the world, we're going to look at the way of the cross. When we pin our flags to the mast of, of Jesus, when we say, I'm following Jesus, what that changes, what that impacts. It means that we're no longer slaves to sin, 
We're a new creation. So if we know and love Jesus this morning, we are a new creation. But secondly, it's also a journey where we'll carry scars. And Paul speaks about that, and we'll look into that in a bit more detail. And then just to finish up, where are we we walking this morning? What road are we on? Which way do we walk when the slow-mo moments come? This morning, I really, really believe when I was praying through this passage that God wants to set some people free from some stuff that the world has been pressurizing into into them believing about themselves. And uh, as I was praying, I'm just going to throw these out there. Specifically, I had one person who really, really struggles with physical appearance. So when they look in the mirror, they don't like what they see. And and it's to do with just their face. We would absolutely love to pray with you. I really feel that there's a person here today uh, that that's the case. And then secondly, there's another person that has been called useless by their parents when they were a teenager. They were called useless, and that word is stuck. It's stuck like glue on your heart. And, and God just wants to free you this morning, and He wants to set you free. And put, He wants to put all our feet on solid ground. So in Psalm 40, verse 2, it says, He brought me up from the slimy pit, the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a, a firm place to stand. He wants to do that this morning for all of us. So firstly, we're going to look at the way of the world, uh, obsessed by outward appearance. So for the Jewish people, circumcision was the mark of belonging to the covenant people of God. This act of belonging was something that the Jews allowed themselves to be motivated by. In verse 12, it says they were wanting to make a good impression outwardly. Something that is visible, something that is noticed. This is what they were focused on. And the sad reality was that they were forgetting and dismissing the change that was to go on in here. That when we believe in Jesus, that it's it's not all on the outward. He wants to change our hearts. He wants to do something in us to then do something through us. They were obsessed by the appearance of them as leaders and the uniformity, making everybody look the same. So, uh, and looking in at this, the Judaizers' actions are very similar to that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of people that looked to persecute and catch out Jesus at every opportunity when he was here on earth. And who, they had a grasp of God, but they never had a full understanding of his truth. And one commentator says this about the Pharisees. The Pharisees minded what God spoke, but not what he intended. They were busy in the outward work of the hand, but in curious of the affections and choice of the heart. So God was served in the letter. They did not much inquire into his purpose, and therefore they were curious to wash their hands, but cared not to purify their hearts. So for the Judaizers, there was a focus on doing the right things, which was spoken about. If only I can do, 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 grow this, sort this. But they were neglecting the heart. And also, they were wanting everybody to look the same. Look at all these people. We're we're getting circumcised. They're joining our people, the Jewish nation. How many many have we got now? Brilliant. Wow. But that's not God's plan. We believe in come as you are as a, a strap line for the church. As you don't need to become anything or be anyone or look a certain way, dress a certain way, talk a certain way. They let me in. So, it's all good. Two people found that funny. The only uniformity that we are after is that we feel, all feel welcome, 
and that we're accepted and we're all on a journey at whatever pace, at whatever experience with Christianity. So maybe there are a few people here this morning that just need to hear that. The people God used throughout the Bible were never the same, never all from the same backgrounds or appearance. The disciples were the most diverse ramshackle bunch that Jesus had in his crew. I like that word ramshackle. I had to get it in there at some point. And so is this place. In what other context would this work? All of us sit, you know, sitting here. In what other context? I, we often speak about that. In what other context would we be sitting with all range of people from different backgrounds and ages and experience? And that's how God intends it. And he absolutely loves it. Mark Twain says this, comparison is the death of joy. When we compare, we discount the gifts that God has uniquely intended for each and every one of us to long for something else that is never intended for a fit for our lives. It's never intended. He'll take care of us. God just wants to say that this morning. He'll take care of us. So not to compare with the person next to us. Don't let uniformity or trying to be someone else or like everyone else get in the way of God doing a work in you. And I struggled massively with comparison from a very young age and at university and at work. And it just reared its head in appearance through childhood, like through primary school, secondary school especially. Want to be the cool kids, you know, have to have the hair a certain way, have to have the, the cool bag, the cool shoes that light up. Maybe not at secondary school, that was maybe more primary school. But then when I got to uni, I need to drink as much as the person next to me. I need to get as drunk as them. I need to not remember what happened the night before. God's done something in my heart to change that, but it's still, still there. It's still there. Oh, they've got a new car, Mary. We could get a new car. Oh, they've moved house. Let's have a wee look on ASPC. We could move house. Comparison is the death of joy. Seek God out this morning. So they're obsessed by outward appearance. Secondly, they were fueled by fear. They were fueled by fear. Back in secondary school, I used to be a very quiet, shy uh, person. You might struggle to believe that now, but it is true. But during my years there, there was one person who filled my life with fear. Hairs on the back of the neck, cold shivers, and it was an art teacher that I had. And I honestly can't even remember his name. I've kind of blanked it. You know, I got some therapy, got written on. <laughs> but we'll just call him, I don't know, what we call him? Uh, Mr. Mr. Brush. We'll call him Mr. Brush. But a rumor started circulating that this guy, if your work wasn't good enough, so I went into first year and we heard about this guy. If your work wasn't good enough or you were bad in class, that he would explode. He'd kick off and you don't want to see this guy kick off. His anger was out of this world. And there was one rumor that started about a, a sixth year who he locked in his cupboard for half a day. So we all looked, there was that cupboard over there and we all looked over and went, oh dear, oh dear. So what I did, I thought I need to be the best art student I could be. So I watched Watercolor Challenge. I never missed an episode of Art Attack. I uh, bought the latest Crayolas and the latest paint set and I made sure that all my work was top notch. And I used every brain cell to concentrate. I was the first person in the class, but I was a nervous wreck. My whole art experience was not a very positive one and it was shaped by fear. I was thinking, what if I get sent to the cupboard and the sick fear's still there and he's like 25 and uh, you know, nobody's seen him for years. And I haven't painted since either. But my actions around that art class were dictated 
and we're genuinely shaped by fear. Genuinely shaped by fear. And we see a very similar theme with the Judaizers in verse 12. They only do this, they only, they only do this to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So just to expand on that, if Jewish, Jewish Gentiles associated with Gentile Christians simply on the basis of their common belief that the cross is the only way to be saved, they'd be condemned by zealous uh, Jews for rejecting the Jewish teaching that only law-abiding Jews were included in the covenant of salvation. So if they mixed with people who weren't fully all in with their way of thinking, they'd be condemned. But if they got Gentiles to follow their rules and customs, to sign up to exactly the way of life that they were, they were following, they'd be complimented. Their Jewish laws mattered more than a risen Jesus. They focused more on getting these people to agree with the rules and regulations. And if they associated with anyone who wasn't all in, they were condemned by other Jews. They were shunned. And they didn't want to be condemned by their peers. And being led and directed by fear is something that most, most of us will have encountered at some point in our lives. And for these Jewish leaders, they didn't want to be cut off. They didn't want to be cut off and have a bad reputation. So the fear of that developing became rooted in their mission, in their beings, in the way that they'd done life, in the way that they made decisions. And it grew, and it grew, and it grew. Florence Nightingale says this, how very little can be done under the spirit of fear. The great news we have this morning is that when the power of God enters the situation that we're afraid of, fear has no place. It has no place. If you are living with fear as a resident this morning, if you know there's something in your heart, in your thoughts, maybe you're scared of your boss at work, maybe you're scared of the dark, maybe you're scared of driving, maybe you're scared of what people think of you, we'd absolutely love to pray with you this morning and ask Jesus in because it works. Because living with fear is restricting the work that God wants to do in our lives. It's allowing to have a place to restrict and to diminish, to extinguish. And we want to be a place at City Church North where we say no more to fear. No more in Jesus' name. I'd love just to pray eh, for that right now. Eh, could we just pray very quickly? Lord, we just ask for your spirit just to come right now. Holy Spirit, come. We just want to speak against the spirit of fear. Anything that we are afraid of, anything that has a grip on our lives, we just ask in Jesus' name, will that be gone? We thank you that you have the power and that you are above all things, Lord. And we just declare your name over whatever situation that we're thinking of right now, Lord. And we just say, be gone in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the way of the world is fueled by fear. And then next, it's polluted by pride. In verse 13, it says this. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. 
So they weren't interested in the moral transformation. They weren't interested in these people having uh, something happen on the inside for them to get to know Jesus in their hearts. They weren't interested in that. They just wanted to spout their mouths off to their mates about the amount of people that they had circumcised, the amount of people that they had gathered to join the, the Jewish nation. They wanted to maintain their identity and took great pride in growing and maintaining that. And pride is such a dangerous thing. And it's a blocker to God's plan for our lives again, just like fear is. Pride is a blocker to God's plans. There's a story uh, of uh, two ships in uh, the summer of 1986 that collided in the Black Sea in Russia. And hundreds of people died uh, as a result of that. News of the disaster, it darkened when investigation found that it wasn't engine failure, it wasn't bad weather, but it was human stubbornness. So what had happened is each captain was aware of the other ship's presence. They knew the other ship was there. Both could have steered clear. They had time. They had distance. But according to the news reports, neither of them wanted to give way. Each was too proud to yield first. All they needed to do was steer away. By the time they came to their senses, it was too late. What a sad, sad picture of pride. It destroys not only ourselves, it doesn't only block what God wants to do in ourselves, but it destroys others. The two, you can just picture the two captains staring each other out, too prideful to move. The Judaizers' pride and identity of their nation meant that many of them never fully grasped the amazing hope of Jesus, the amazing hope and restoration that Jesus wants to do. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is inundated with verses on pride. In 29, uh, Proverbs 29, 23, it says, man's pride brings him low. In Proverbs 13, 10, pride breeds quarrels. And then Proverbs 11, 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But there's hope this morning. Don't let it destroy you and others like it did these captains of the ship. Speak about it. Speak about where it's an issue. <coughs> and where I'm speaking about pride, I'm specifically, I feel that that's one for us as men. Sorry, ladies. But I feel I need to just speak uh, to the men that I'm on a journey with this as well in terms of pride. And I really feel that God sent us as a group of men to share and to cry and to laugh together and to be real men together and not to care about our identity like the Judaizers, but care about supporting one another before God and journeying together in realness and vulnerability. And I really believe that's a word for all of us, that that's the kind of church that, that we want at City Church North. And it might be messy, but at least there's work going on for God to do instead of a tidy church with lots hidden. So the way of the world is polluted by pride. And then secondly, uh, the way of the cross. So after going through the Judaizers and their way of living, Paul then speaks about choosing the way of the cross and boasting only in Christ. Living for Jesus means a lot of things change, but here are a few ones that stand out from this passage. So firstly, we're a new creation. So verse 14 and 15, it says this, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the Lord has been crucified to me, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, 
what counts is the new creation. So that means that we are no longer slaves to sin. It means that the old self, the old me, the lost, sinful, shameful me is dead. No more. I'm no longer a slave to the old me and the old habits, the past mistakes, my sinful nature. It's wiped clean. It's gone. It's spotless. Now, I'm not much of a, a car mechanic, but I was trying to think of an illustration that could maybe best serve that. And uh, please excuse any mechanical gaps in my explanation. But if I had a car that the engine was rotten and not working as it should, it would impact the rest of the car. It, would, it wouldn't move or work as intended and its purpose would be diminished. It'd be destined for the scrap heap. But if I had a new engine put in this car, I'd take the car to the mechanic who'd put it in for me. And then there's new life in the car. Every other part feeds off that newness and it works as it should. It breathes life into the car, unless it's a Renault Clio, which two years ago just died on us, even after we'd done that. (laughs) But now the car can serve its purpose. And we often say, don't we, when we get our car fixed, oh, it's like a new car now, isn't it? When we get those new things done to it. Before Jesus... Before we ask Jesus into our lives, we don't work as we should. Our purpose is difficult to grasp. With Jesus, the whole car, when we ask him into our lives, the whole car would be brand new, every part new, every, it'd be a new model. And I'm not saying that things won't break down now and again. We just go back to the garage. We come back to church. We come back to our small groups. We come back to people who know and love Jesus. And we ask before God to just Bring, bring restoration. Will you just fix that? Because if we don't, it will affect another part. Often happens with a car. If you just leave it, I'm quite stubborn like that. It'll get worse and worse and worse before you know it, half a dozen things are wrong with the car and the bill gets larger and larger. It's just like that. If we leave sin or something we're struggling with to fester, it'll grow, it'll spread. We're a new creation in Jesus this morning. He puts a new heart in us. It impacts our lives. It breathes purpose into us. The broken heart is no more. So no one here, no matter how long you have thought it, are destined for the scrap heap. Just as I wrote that when I was preparing, I just feel that's a word for maybe one or two of us thinking, we don't, I don't have a place. And that's just secondly, very briefly, uh, the way of the cross means that we, we have a place. If we, we all have a place. Zephaniah 3 verse 7 says, The Lord, your God, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You, me, everybody here. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you, each and every one of us. He rejoices over us with gladness this morning. He will quiet you by his love and he will exalt over you with loud singing. What an amazing picture that is this morning. If you don't know Jesus this morning, what an exciting prospect. You become a new creation. The old you, see you later. No more. And for those of us who do know Jesus, let's remember that afresh. And any parts that we know are broken, any parts that we've left for a while and are spreading, let's just bring it to his cross. And then next, the way of the cross is a journey where we will carry scars. 
In verse 17, Paul says this, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So Paul mentions that he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. Why does he mention this? What does it mean? It seems to me he wants to let the readers of this letter know in the very last couple of sentences that he's been through attacks, he's been through opposition, and he has physical scars etched on his body. He has emotional scars etched on his body. His loyalty is unswerving. He was devoted to Jesus. And this showed it to his critics and his doubters. This is not going to stop me. And this is important for those of us who are Christians that will carry scars. There will be tough times. And the enemy will use every trick in the book to knock us off course when we're close to God and to be aware of that. I absolutely love uh, Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, and it's the message version. I love the message version of the Bible now and again, just for a different kind of take on things. I really encourage you, uh, if you're struggling with Bible reading and you're thinking, I'm not really getting anywhere, you know, have a wee look at the message Bible, get one on Amazon. Uh, Just really good language. I feel God speaks to me sometimes really a lot more clearly, but I'm just going to read out Hebrews 1, Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, just off the back of this. It's a journey where we'll carry scars. It means we better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we are in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there, in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through. That will shoot adrenaline into your souls. A lot of us here have scars. Some are maybe not fully healed. Jesus wants to say, remember my story. Remember what I did for you, child. Plow through, never quit. So just to close up, I just want to ask the question, which way are we walking? Which way are we walking this morning? I wonder if we could just pray uh, just very quickly again. Lord, we just ask for your, your spirit just to come, Lord. we just pray that you'll help us just to be drawn to the way of the cross, Lord, your way of living, Lord. And where maybe we've been sucked in by the the way of the world with temptations, Lord. That you'll just bring your, just your healing hand to that, Father. You bring restoration. Just want to draw close to you, Lord, and say, we're, we're in, Lord. We want to follow you. We want to go your way.
Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand? Just give a wee minute for the band if they would like to come up and just set up. Uh, there's one thing, just as we close, uh, I quite like watching game shows now and again. When I was at uni, I watched loads of game shows. And one of my favorites were Deal or No Deal. And in Deal or No Deal, uh, the contestants, one phrase that used to come up regularly uh, on this show was, uh, Noel, you know what? I came with nothing, and I don't mind if I leave with nothing. You know, I'm, I'm quite happy just now. And that phrase just really struck, for me, struck me in terms of church, in terms of how we do church, in terms of how we do our lives with God. You know, I came here with nothing. I'm quite happy to leave of nothing. And God just wants to say right now, no, no, I want to, I want to meet with you and, and just to be open to that. He wants to give us good gifts. He wants to take away that which is tangled up in a mess and, and which, uh, which we're struggling with. And he just wants to say, no, don't let that phrase enter your vocabulary. So why don't, uh, why don't we worship? And if anything at all that we've said, maybe you've just come in with a heavy heart this morning and you're like, I just need to, I just need prayer. I don't even want to speak about it. I just want, I just want prayer. Or if anything else at all, we'd absolutely love to pray with you. Uh, you can do it over at our, my left, your right. There'll be a group of people. So guys, there'll be guys. Ladies, there'll be ladies. We'll just get alongside you and just ask God into the situation. For the rest of us, uh, we're going to worship. Let's do that.